turn to Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not, will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, most of us come this morning with anxious hearts. We live with fears of all kinds. We carry them with us everywhere, even when we come into your presence. So Lord, speak, but also help your people to listen. Break through the barriers that we erect so that we can hear the good things that you want to say to us. Break through so that we can leave our sin and our sorrow and taste your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1991. It was August, earlier in the month than this is. And I was approaching the New Hampshire border, or perhaps you could say the Massachusetts border. And this psalm came to my mind, and I started to sing this psalm. It probably sounded a lot like when Christopher chanted that one Sunday morning. (laughs) You probably wouldn't have wanted to hear me sing this psalm, but the reason why I was about to cross over the border into Massachusetts is that I was on my way to Florida. I had never lived outside of New England, and now I was going to live in Florida. I had no idea what that would be like. My entire experience with Florida was a family vacation when I was six in the month of November, and then for a long weekend to go to the seminary and see what that was like and go to a Ligonier conference. The thought of August in Florida is something completely foreign to me. I was filled, as you might imagine, if you were in my shoes, with all kinds of anxieties about the trip. Will my car make it? And in fact, I did have some trouble with the radiator on my way. Will I make it? Will I arrive in my destination? Will there be an accident? Will I like it there? Will I do well there? I couldn't just call my parents and have them show up at the doorstep in an hour to take care of me. Because at the same time, I'm moving to Florida, they're moving to California. Life was very different. And it was this psalm that I used, that God used to bring comfort to me in the midst of all of the uncertainty that I was experiencing as I drove down Route 3. I am in good company. Because before David Livingston left England to go to Africa, 
This is one of the psalms that he read with his father and sister. He was going on a much different journey, a much longer journey, a much more arduous journey, one which he could not just pull over into a hotel, but one in which he was stuck on a ship in the sea in the storms. We live with anxieties. The change in our lives, and some of you are going through big changes, but even so, the change in our lives prompts our struggle or reveals, rather, the anxiety of our hearts, the fearfulness of our hearts, the reality that we struggle to trust God with what's going on in our lives. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus can be trusted to deal with your anxious heart. If you're one of those people who looks at the notes and writes things down, I've changed a few things, don't worry about it. Jesus can be trusted to deal with our anxious hearts. And as we look at this psalm, there are promises that are here that the psalmist is making. And I want us to remember, of course, that when we look at it, we look at it through Jesus Christ. And we remember, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that all God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ. And so as we read these things and we think about these things, we think about them in light of Christ. He is the one who God is using, the Father is using, to fulfill these promises. Okay? So that's how I'm looking at this and, and how I want you to, to recognize I'm looking at this and to look at it that way with me. And the first part of this reality of Jesus can be trusted to deal with our anxious hearts is basically... A response. Fear not. The Creator is our strong helper. And we see this in the first two verses, which are set apart from the rest of this, uh, the rest of this psalm in some ways. A little context here. Uh, this is one of the songs of ascent that we see starting in 120 and then continuing on. And these are songs of pilgrimage. And if you actually, if you look at those Psalms, it, it starts in the desert. Here we have them moving to the hills, and later they have them going into Jerusalem. And so these Psalms actually mark the progression of God's people as they are geographically moving towards Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of the people that are proclaimed in the Old Testament. So they're preparing to go into the presence of God, and these psalms are part of how they're preparing themselves and encouraging themselves and reminding themselves of God's promises as they go. And so these are important songs for them, for them and for us. But what's interesting to me is that here he's drawing close to the hills and the mountains that surround Jerusalem, and he says, where does my help come from? Which implies he needs help. And there's been nothing thus far to indicate why he would need help. It's sort of like a bolt out of the blue. He doesn't go on, as some of the other psalms do, about enemies and betrayals and anything like that. He just starts with this presupposition that he is in danger because he is a pilgrim. Where does my help come from? And if we spend only a few minutes thinking about where the dangers might be, we can see that there are going to be physical dangers. There will be treacherous pathways. 
He has to basically hike up and through mountains to get to Jerusalem, and that isn't always easy. Those can be treacherous roads. Remember, they don't have highways like us, and so some of their paths are more like what we would find if we go hiking into the, in the mountains around us. Having done some of that, not as much as I'd like to, there are parts that create fear in me because that edge is really close. And all it will take is for me to trip. And bye-bye. So, there's the physical danger of treacherous pathways. There's also the physical danger of bandits who hide in caves and around corners behind rocks to uh, rob you of what you have. There's also the danger, as we're aware of here, flash floods from storms. The rain might come and suddenly, suddenly you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time because you don't realize it's really a wadi. And here comes the water, and it's going to push you all the way down to a place you don't want to go. The psalmist probably also envisions spiritual dangers. Because he's talking about the mountains here, the hills. And these were often viewed as the homes or the abodes of gods. And so perhaps there's a hint here of spiritual conflict that is going to be experienced. And he's fearful or anxious about that taking place. Now, what's important for us to remember is that he knows he needs help, but he also expects help. He's not a man on the street corner with his hand out hoping to get help. He is a man who knows help is going to come. And this word help that we see is one that harkens back to what we read in Genesis chapter 2. As the, as the Lord looked at the situation in the garden that He had placed Adam in, he, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he does not have a helper suitable to him. And so it, ends, it culminates in the creation of Eve to be a suitable helper for him. Same word. Same concept. The idea is one of concrete help. Concrete assistance to meet particular needs. And so we find in the creation of Adam that God is meeting the needs of Adam through Eve. As she helps him, of course, he also helps her. Okay, There are things that she is going to be called to do that he needs to assist her in as well. God is saying, or well, he's saying through the psalmist, I will be your helper. I will be the one to provide the concrete assistance that you need when you are facing the dangers of the hills on this journey. This help is not a response, but is the Lord, whom he clarifies as, who made heaven and earth. And we really need to pause as we think about that. And there's a reason he brings it up that's very important for us to keep in mind. It is because the maker of heaven and earth is more than able to provide the physical and spiritual help that you need to face the fears of your heart to continue to walk with Him 
in the fears that you have. Because He is the maker of heaven and earth, He has control as well as authority, both of which we think of in terms of power, over anything that we might encounter, over any fear that we might have. There is no fear that you can experience that is greater than the power He has. When our kids were younger, we would show them veggie tales. And there's one about being afraid. And I always liked that one because it goes, the song goes, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. Okay, I like the way that song kind of goes, but that's an important truth to remember. He's bigger than the fears we face. They look huge to us, but they're minuscule to Him who made everything. He has power over all that He has created, and He can address those fears. And so we see in light of that, the psalmist is not sort of settling for a second best helper. Because He, in this pilgrimage, essentially has everything on the line for God. Okay. How is this connecting back to Christ? Well, we know from places like Colossians 1 that it is by Him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all those spiritual things you're afraid of. Created by and for Jesus Christ. All things were created through Him and were created for Him. He has control over them. This is in keeping with John 1 when it talks about the Word of God who was with God and who was God and through whom all things were made. Jesus is the One who is the Maker of heaven and earth that we can trust to be our help in time of need. He can be our help precisely because He comes to us when we're helpless. Romans 5, that idea that's there of when we were helpless, Christ died for us. And so He's not put off by our helplessness as we sometimes are put off by the helplessness of others because it reveals our own weakness. He comes and He rescues His people. And so our anxious hearts can find peace in Jesus who is our powerful Maker and Redeemer. Secondly, Fear not. Jesus keeps you despite present troubles. In, in verses 3 through 6, we see a shift that takes place. Uh, the, the, the help motif is sort of gone. It picks up a new word also from Genesis 2, this idea of keeps and keeper. And the rest of the verse, uh, the rest of this psalm, rather, the next six verses, six times this word is going to be used. It's the main theme of this psalm, that God is the one who keeps. There's a shift that takes place. In verses 1 and 2, it's I and my. And now it's you and yours. 
Okay, he's, he's finding his help in, the, in, in God, the maker of heaven and earth, but now he wants you, the, his audience, to, to recognize God's help too. To recognize that God keeps not just me, but you. This is a promise for you as well. And this word that we find that pops up so many times here, as I mentioned, goes back to Genesis 2. We see it a couple of times. But the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Some translations have cultivated. But it's this idea that we find of someone who exercises great care. And the, the range of this word, all of it has that idea of exercising great care. Whether it's the great care of obedience, observing all that God has commanded us to do. Whether it's the idea of, of observing what's outside while you guard and protect other people. You must exercise great care in doing that so the enemy doesn't get in and destroy. It's the great care of a shepherd who watches over his sheep to make sure that they're healthy, to make sure that they're safe. And so it is used in all of these kinds of, of contexts to help us understand the greatness of care and the variety of care that's provided. And in Genesis 2, it's the care of a farmer who watches over his crops so they're not destroyed by weeds, they're not destroyed by bugs, and they're able to provide a rich harvest. That's a rich word, this idea of keeping. And so we see that Jesus is not like Cain, because that very same word shows up in Genesis 4. Cain has already killed his brother Abel, God wants him to repent of this. He asks, where's your brother? And he says, who am I? Am I my, bro- am I my brother's keeper? How do I know where he is? He knew precisely where he was because he had put, them, put him there. He was not carefully observing, however, his brother, not taking care of, watching out for, and, and shepherding his brother, but was seeking to destroy his brother. And so while men like Cain can fail us, the Father cares for us, keeps us in part by providing Jesus as the good shepherd who keeps us in his hand. Now the psalmist kind of continues to unpack this idea of what it means to keep. And part of what he says is, your foot will not be moved. Now it doesn't mean like you're in concrete. okay? But the idea is more the, uh, that of slipping falling. Your feet are going to be secure. This is important, of course, when you're on a journey, especially when you're climbing through mountain paths. The other day, we went to Gates Pass uh, as part of the, the national park, and we went exploring a little bit. Not as much as we probably wanted because there was a storm on the horizon. We weren't sure if it was coming this way or not. And sure enough, what happened? My foot slipped. Fortunately, it just slipped into a prickly pear. So it was, it was just little tiny bristles that are still stuck in my leg. It's not a, it wasn't a big deal. There was no blood drawn on this one. But that's what can happen, and that's what he's saying won't happen. 
you will not fall to your peril. That's the reason why when I finally went to the uh, Grand Canyon, I decided, yeah, that whole idea I had of hiking rim to rim, I'm not really going to follow up on that. I saw that path and how easy it would be to slip and fall really far. Not so good. My kids want me home. My wife wants me home. Not at the bottom of the canyon or in a grave. So that's what's being communicated here. Uh, He keeps them in part by not letting their foot slip and fall. And so he adds another. He can be trusted to exercise this great care in part because he does not sleep. He does not slumber. These This idea is repeated three times very quickly to emphasize this. Why would he emphasize that God does not sleep or does not slumber? I think it has to do with the events of Elijah on Mount Carmel. When it was the battle of the gods. When he said to the the prophets of Baal, well first he said to the king, bring the prophets of Baal and they'll call on their God and I'll call on the Lord of Israel and we'll see who really is God and who you really ought to follow. And so he let them go first. And so here they are, crying, weeping, yelling, cutting themselves, wanting fire to come down from heaven, and there's Elijah mocking them. And what does he say? One of the things he says is, Is your God asleep? Do you have to wake him up? Similar to uh, Mr. Baseball with Tom Selleck when he goes to Japan to play baseball. And he goes to one of the Buddhist temples and he asks why they're ringing the bell. And the, uh, the owner's wife, uh, not wife, daughter goes, to wake up the gods. He doesn't need to be woken up. He's always awake. He's always alert and always paying attention to his people. Now, there are times, of course, that in the Psalms uh, they wonder about that because God seems to be a little late on the scene from their accounting of time, but God is never late. He's just not there when we want him there because we don't want distress. This song points us to God as the keeper, not just of individual Israelites, but also he shifts to that he is the keeper of Israel. And so both of these ideas are present in the psalm. He keeps individual people who believe in him, but he also keeps the whole group, the community of people who trust in him. And that's an important thing to note. That idea of trust in Him. These promises are not for everyone. These promises are for those who trust in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so He keeps the church. He preserves the church. He exercises care over the church. But He also keeps and preserves and exercises care over individual Christians. And so there's double security in that for us. That not only does he keep us as individuals, but he keeps our community, which is part of how he keeps us as individuals. Those are reciprocal. They work back and forth with one another, strengthening God's 
capacity, or not capacity, but his, uh, the ways in which he keeps us. God is concerned with both the individual and the community. But this idea of keeping reflects the, the priestly blessing that we find in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And this really, in a sense, is a meditation on God keeping his people. It's a meditation on that part of the priestly blessing and what it means for his people. He repeats again that God will not fall asleep on the job. He's reaffirming this to the people. In other words, he is not like the character I played in a VBS. I was the mayor of Bumbleyburg. I still hear Carl Ezekiel saying, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor, to me, when he was such a child. And one of the skits, of course, I was the bungling mayor of Bumbleyburg. I was the comic relief to my, friend, my late friend's straight man, the, pre, the pastor and gospel speaker to my foolishness. And so, yes, there was a picture in the newspaper of me asleep at my job. <laughs> That's not God. We don't have to rouse him. We don't have to awaken him. He's at work doing what he wants to do and, his, and what he has to do by his promise. So back to your dangers. There are dangers by day. There are dangers by night when you're on the road. And those are slightly different dangers. But what he does here is he says that God will protect you regardless of the day dangers and the night dangers. Whether it's the extreme heat or the predators that come out at night, He keeps you. He protects you. He watches over you. Now, He could be also referring to the gods of nature. Because remember, the pagans had worshipped the sun and the moon. Abraham's own parents had worshipped the moon. And so perhaps there's this idea there of, again, that spiritual conflict that might take place as well. But Jesus can be trusted to keep you through the fears that so trouble you as you go through a week. Thirdly, fear not. Jesus keeps you through future fears. There's a shift that takes place in this psalm in the, in the tense of the verb. Now it goes to an imperfect tense. And so the implication is not just the things you're afraid of now, but also the things you will be afraid of in the future. Not just your present pilgrimage to Jerusalem now, but the rest of your pilgrimage for the whole totality of your life. God deals with these things. He can be trusted in these things. And so the psalmist says, He will keep that imperfect or future tense, your life. Now, of course, there's a danger here of taking this out of context, the context of the rest of the psalms which mention that there are real dangers and difficulties that we experience. And so this is not to be taken as a promise that 
trust in Jesus and everything's going to be happy, hunky-dory, and you'll never experience any troubles, and you'll never cry a tear of anger or shame or fear or anything like that. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that nothing bad will befall you. But as Eugene Peterson notes, no, in, no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have evil power over us. That is, will be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. Which sounds remarkably like the end of Romans 8. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And if you compare that passage to when Paul talks about his life in 2 Corinthians, what you find is Paul lived most of those. He was not arguing from theory. He was arguing from practice. That none of those things separated him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus not because of Paul's greatness, but because of the greatness of Jesus, and therefore they can't separate you. God's purposes will come to pass. He will keep your life. Think, you know, for those of you who like to think of literary things, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's famous novel, an allegory. It's not that Christian didn't experience many trials and tribulations. He had to fight with the lion. He ended up in just in the castle of uh, despair, with a giant despair. He went through the slough of despond. He went through the, the vanity fair with all of its temptations to seduce him. He went through all of those things, but he was kept by God as he went through all of those things, so that none of them destroyed him, but rather he was preserved through them. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, please find a readable copy. That is a great work for encouragement. And so he continues, the psalmist does, this promise is to keep your going out and your coming in. And that sounds remarkably like what sheep do. John 10, the coming out, the going in. He keeps us through that whole process. He's, this is meant to, again, assure us of these things. But what's going on in the midst of our lives, I think, is that he wants us to discover his great love and his power through those trials. For instance, it would be easy for us to drive in our car to Gates Pass and go, look at the pretty swallow. Look at the pretty rocks. Isn't that nice? It's another thing to go out and investigate and move around the rocks and the swallow and to discover more fully their incredible beauty. Trials are the ways in which God calls us to discover the fullness of his strength and his love for his people. We're not simply spectators, but we experience firsthand the greatness of his love. Spurgeon puts it this way. He talks earlier about puddles. You don't learn much about the faithfulness of God from puddles. But among the huge Atlantic waves of bereavement, poverty, temptation, and reproach, we learn the power of Jehovah because we feel the weakness of man. Thank God then, if you have been led by a rough road, 
It is this which is giving you your experience of God's greatness and loving kindness. That's not the road we choose. We want the easy road. I know I do. But it's because of the very difficult things I've experienced that I know the depths of His power and His goodness and His love, even though I am so prone to forget that the next time I hit a bump. Let's jump forward for a second. 1 Peter chapter 5. We already read that. And it connects here in a number of ways part of which is humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. In the meantime, we're casting all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. We're not keeping those anxieties to ourselves. We're not pretending they don't exist. But we're throwing them to Him. I can't deal with this. Can you help me with this? Lord, I got, I got a whole bag of these problems that are weighing down my heart. And when I say this, I, I, I want to put a caveat out for a second, if I can. In terms of mental health, I'm not speaking about um, generalized anxiety disorder. Okay, Because a generalized anxiety disorder is not about tangible things. You're worried about everything even if there's nothing to worry about. I'm talking about casting the real cares, specific cares, rather, is a better term than real. The specific cares that plague your heart. Okay? Not just walking around always being afraid, but I'm afraid of X, Y, Z, and 1, 2, 3. And casting those upon Him. All right? Why does he say that we should cast our cares upon him? Well, he does include the mighty hand, but he says, more importantly, he cares for you. He cares about us, and he takes care of us. In other words, he keeps us. This is another way of looking at that. And one of the ways in which he keeps us or takes care of us is through his son, whom Peter has earlier called the chief shepherd, connecting back with what we've already talked about with sheep and shepherd. He cares for us, not just in the present troubles, but also the long-term troubles. Those long-term fears that we have can be cast upon him. Health, career, and finances, whether we actually get to retire or not, and what we'll do with our retirement. He protects or keeps us in the midst of those things. Peter acknowledges our suffering, but he also says that Christ will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in due time. Sounds like he might have been reading the psalm. Of course he had. So most of us have anxious hearts. 
Changing circumstances often reveal that to us. We worry about the short term. We worry about accidents. We worry about crime. We worry about illness. There can also be long-term things. Careers, health, retirement. This psalm is meant to help pilgrims bid their anxious fears subside. They only subside when we see Jesus in both His power and His love promising to help us, promising to be our keeper. This doesn't mean difficult things won't be experienced, but rather it means that He is with us in the fiery furnaces of life. And that He brings us safe to the other side. So when those fears arise in your own heart, and they will, if they're not already rising, remind them of Jesus' promise to bless you and keep you because He's already died for you and you belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this psalm. And while we're not on a physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem, we are on a pilgrimage of sorts. We are people on the way, walking through what's often treacherous terrain, surrounded by enemies and other dangers. And Father, like sheep, we can be rather fearful because we don't really have the capacity to protect ourselves. And so, Father, help us to cease our striving and strategizing and to cast these things on You. Help us to be trusting and relying upon Your wisdom, relying upon Your power, relying upon Your love and grace. Help us to be people depending upon You, actively depending upon You. Because, Father, that is so contrary to what the flesh does. And so it is only a work of grace for us to do that. And so we ask that You would be doing that. And in that doing so, you would make us a more faithful and godly people for your glory, for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.